0: The National Archives podcast series, Big Ideas on Pilgrimage in England. Presented by Dr Alexandra Harris. This talk was recorded on the 1st of June 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. I'm actually going to talk about two projects, because I was, I was asked really to talk about my, my first big research project, which became Romantic Moderns. I think that probably relates to archives in quite I hope quite close close way so I'm going to talk a bit about that but because also it's 10 years old in my mind and I hope you won't ask me difficult questions about it and what I've really got at the top of my brain is this, is this new book about uh, the weather so this is a sort of two projects talk and I'll waffle on and do a kind of big overview of them both for uh, 40 minutes or so and then it would be great to you know hear some questions and discuss things a little bit I feel I guess quite self-conscious coming to the National Archives because I think I'm probably not not the most archival of researchers, and I did I did send this in my warning email. Although I did use lots of archives for for Romantic moderns, the the sweep of the book meant that I had to spend most of my time just sort of wading through back issues of you know published magazines and you know the complete works of uh, Virginia Woolf were the main uh, source. But I think I'm very aware that all that I'm doing is at one remove from other people's archival research. That I'm forever engaging with digitised manuscripts with you know, the, the published, collected letters from, that have been done from, from archives. So I feel I like tracing back that, you know, root of scholarship. So Romantic Moderns was a body of research I did from about 2005 to 2009 or 10. And what I tried to trace was really a rediscovery of English landscape and heritage, or at least a fresh look at it, a way that people in the 1930s and 40s were becoming newly conscious and writing about English inheritance in, in different ways. Um, there was one particular, oh, is that, that was my book, uh, there was one particular um, article that I found uh, on one of my uh, you know, month-long tools through every possible back issue of the TLS that made me feel that I was on the right track, and it was called On Pilgrimage in England. It's by the writer Edmund Blunden, and it dates from a very dark period of the war, March 1942. And he says that over the last few years, people have been wanting to explore our England, her past, her present, and all that composes her tradition. This desire to explore is not new, he says. Of course, we know that. It's the desire Chaucer felt when he went off on his narrative pilgrimage of the Canterbury Tales, but blunden thought that in 1942 there was a particular kind of urgency behind that pilgrimage, that momentum had picked up. This was a threatened country, a fast-changing country, and the need to understand it and define it was intense. We have been increasingly, he says, on pilgrimage towards those shrines which conceivably stand for the country we are now fighting for. And he talks about the great wealth of new guidebooks, literary histories, architectural surveys. He mentions anthologies um, collecting up fragments of tradition. You wouldn't believe how many anthologies are published in 1939, 1945. Anthologies, you know, small enough to pack in a soldier's uniform. Anthologies for the home front, anthologies for grannies. Just such an overwhelming outburst of... Books which collect up fragments of a, of a culture. Blunden describes the great unveiling of the British school of painting. And we sort of imagine that we've always known a bit about English painting, but no. Rowlandson, Cotman, George Stubbs, Francis Town. People who I think are um, you know, quite well known today um, had not been studied and exhibited uh, at this moment in 1942. Blunden lists names which have acquired resonance today but and he says they're magical but people were only just beginning to think about them as part of a as part of a continuous line of British art and so this drove me I suppose on my own pilgrimage. I wanted to trace the contours of this great coming home of interest in in English and more widely British things. And I wanted to ask whether it was possible to be a modernist while also being engaged with you know, 19th century English watercolour painters and guidebooks to Stonehenge. Uh, one of the most important interesting people I think who were doing all this about how to be both ancient and modern was John Piper and there he is uh, at the gate of his farmhouse Forty Bottom amazingly tall and and thin I love the way this photograph by Bill Brunt makes his chiseled cheeks rhyme with the the flint on his wall as a, a young artist in the 1930s, uh, just out of the Royal College of Art, he did what all serious young artists do in turning to abstraction. And he was good at it. He specialised in geometric constructions like this, little dotted lines teasing you into a sense of perspective. And he exhibited with all abstract exhibiting groups who felt strongly that this was the future of art that it was an international language and that that was that was the, the thing of integrity to do politically was to paint in an international language of, of form but John Piper has a guilty secret he likes going out and painting his local landscapes in fact he likes cycling around churches in Dorset and Norfolk just as much as he likes going to Paris And I went along to the archive at Tate Britain and found these sort of secret sketchbooks that he's working on there. During the very years when he's exhibiting abstracts uh, in the public places, what's going on in his sketchbooks are flint churches and little maps of Norfolk and notes on box pews. There's a sense of this being a guilty pleasure. Piper started to write about these English adventures and even eventually plucked up the courage to publish on them. He started to exhibit... Collages like like this archaeological scene of Avery where he he uses paper collage to build up the landscape almost as if it were digging down through the strata of the the land. And though this looks pleasant enough today, this was sort of shocking in 1937. People called him a traitor to the cause of modern art for doing this. The atmosphere in this art world of the 30s was electric, actually. Uh, you had to choose between the figurative and the abstract, and your choice was an ideological statement. So his, you know, history, history was a hot potato. Archives, a tradition, a sense of inheritance. What could you do with it? How could you, how could you put it to use in a modern world that demanded the formal? For many of the abstract artists, to paint pure forms was this step towards universality, a common international language, but others felt that actually they weren't speaking any language of integrity at all by doing that. The situation was very well summed up, I think, by Paul Nash, another artist caught between creeds, a little older than Piper, but with very similar interests. And he asks, is it possible to go modern and still be British? The battle lines have been drawn up. Internationalism versus an indigenous culture. Renovation versus conservatism. The industrial versus the pastoral. The functional versus the futile. It's a battle over the identity of modern Britain. But neither Nash nor Piper wanted to have to come down on, on one side or the other. So Piper presses on with landscapes like this, breakwaters at Seaford, sort of wonderfully col calligraphic sketchiness with the, the tinted papers that are reminiscent or, and were reminiscent to him of 18th century watercolours. There's a sort of bright, subtle coolness in the colouring that very consciously references town and Cotman. And once once Piper had started going public with this, this love of local landscapes, um, he and his partner, my family, Evans, were pretty tireless. And off they went, doing all kinds of research into village traditions, local architecture, church architecture particularly. This was one of his favourites, the font uh, at Tollafatrum in, in Dorset, 12th century carving, that came to mean a great deal to Piper who compared this expressive figure uh, with paintings by Picasso and said yes we must look at Picasso but we must also look we must look back because our English history also shows us these sort of tremendous explosions of imaginative power and gives us a, a long view of where modernism is now. Piper published this photograph in 1936 as part of an article about England's early sculptors. And he put at the top of the page a funny little epigraph from the 13th century chronicles of Peter Langtoff, which, which tells the story of a wander whip from Wiltshire who goes off to Rome to visit the Anticruise there. He's he's gagging for, you know, great European culture, but the Italians ask him about the wonders of Stonehenge. And alas, wandering wit from Wiltshire has never been to see Stonehenge, so has nothing to say. And the Italian antiquaries kick him out of doors and bid him go home and see Stonehenge. Amazing that Piper finds this in a thirteenth century chronicle, a brilliant Peterborough chronicle. So, uh, a little cameo that struck a chord with Piper that we often forget to look at was on our own doorsteps. This was the mid-1930s, but with the approach of, of war, his convictions about all this grew much stronger. He looked about him with the intensity that people use when they think they might lose the things in front of them. Um, when you want to preserve things in memory, you paint them in detail. You try to get the texture, the mood, the idiosyncrasy the distinct and the particular particularity became for him a tremendously important word and it was an important word too for my other sort of hero of the the 30s Virginia Woolf and all my thinking really grew around what I saw as a congruity between Piper's move to the particular to local history sorry that's Tolafatrum Church and Virginia Woolf who was increasingly spending her time in Sussex at her country home in Rodmell and thinking about the landscape there and the way that literary that literary history could be written in terms of the landscapes that produced it. She wanted when she started work on her last book, a history of literature, which was never published, she wanted that history to be shaped by views from windows, stretches of country. That's the Sussex downland country she was looking out on as she wrote and as she read importantly as she read and reread her way through Chaucer and Brown and Milton she kept looking out at England traveling walking thinking how do these things go together she wanted to write a history of literature that worked the other way around from most critical studies following the trail backwards from a poem to the landscape that made it she wanted she made a little list of what she wanted to include the effect of country upon writers, our floods, songs sung at the door, the pageant, the mask, the play, the wind, and the rain so her sense of history is extremely. Place-specific, rooted one. She finished a long first chapter called "Anon" about those anonymous early poets who sang lyrics. And she she always imagines medieval poets going along a muddy path from the the church to the manor to the to the cottage, singing at the back doors. She has this sense of um, a sort of deeply democratic medieval culture in which you could just turn up at the kitchen and sing great literature. And there's this web of connections between Wolfe's work on this history of literature and her last published book, Between the Acts, which she was writing in an overlapping period, and which is also a great evocation of place and, and time. And here, too, there are paths across landscape connecting and dividing people. And here, too, there's a sense of a palimpsest. Perhaps I can even use the word an an archive full of richness and fullness, a sense of a threatened culture that has somehow to be preserved, but not stored up in alphabetical order, preserved in a sense that reflects its position in people's minds. So... Wolf includes snippets of poetry, bits of nursery rhymes, half-remembered old wives' tales, how to tell whether a salmon is, is fresh, all those, all those little things that she picks up at overhearing people talking on roads and in back gardens. And she deeply values the half-remembered quotation that shows you that a poem, for example, has entered into someone's mind. She almost likes the misremembered, the idiosyncratic, more than the precise reference to the authoritative edition plus footnote. It matters to her that literature has been read, has been sort of eaten up and consumed and muddled together with all the other things in someone's mind. That's her form of sort of archiving, the personal organic archive of the mind. She has too a powerful sense of the archival quality of the the landscape in, in Sussex. It's archaeological quality, and she has descriptions of how you can see from the air the different land usages, the, the field boundaries, where the, the fields were ploughed in the Napoleonic Wars. A sense of harbouring up layer upon layer of human experience. She called this book a melee and a medley. And I think it was the richest form she could find for the sort of English vision she wanted to express in 1941. And my own book, my own research project, became a bit of a melee and a medley, perhaps in, in tribute to, to Wolfe. Um A little bit you know, I took inspiration from Wolf trying to find a stretchy enough shape in her novel for all that she wanted to include and I was trying to find a stretchy shape uh, to include chapters on uh, gardening and food and villages and churches One of the things I loved about doing the book was coming upon more and more fascinating people as I waded around in memoirs and magazines and diaries. People like Edith Olivier who's now come to fame because um, Anna Thomason has done a whole biography of her. But I was I was just sort of vaguely you know, trying to get through get through some, some of her letters and her diaries. Here she, here she is, um, she was a great friend of, you know, the bright young things, but twi- twice their age, so she managed to be a bright young thing at the age of 55 to 60, so that's, you know gives hope to all. I read her strange, surreal novels, I love the thought of her going round Wiltshire collecting up ancient mama's plays, you know, writing down all the the parts that people had remembered for their bit of the play and yet there she was dressing up in futurist suits and being driven around the countryside in really fast cars this sort of weird collision of being in love with Stonehenge of knowing how to farm of living in a dairy but also being totally on the avant-garde there she is entertaining some troops by the way in in World War II which she did quite often at this moment, there was a whole new market in guidebooks and travel literature to tell you where you could go. Edith Olivier. Was doing some of, of that. She wrote the Gazetteer for the Shell Guide to, to Wiltshire. But there were plenty more. I'm sure you all know H.V. Morton's In Search of England, his travels in his bullnose, Morris Maud. Uh, and then radio was such a great source for this as, as well. Really prolific broadcasters like SPB Mays, who had such a loyal listening to his programmes which went in search of England, that if he announced there was going to be a, you know, a sort of mass visit to Avebury on a particular night, thousands and thousands of people would would turn up and listeners would write in contributing old songs from Yorkshire whatever whatever may is asked for you know listeners would write in so that whole sense of making a community history via the radio which i think we're quite used to now but that was being pioneered in the in the 30s and in a way it, it linked up with mass observation which is obviously contemporary with this and and yet gives us a slightly different, different emphasis. In mass observation, people are writing a lot about what they're doing in the, in the present, their habits of marriage and love and drink and holidays. But the radio archives, and a good deal of it you can get through the, the listener and through the broadcaster's own books was to do with this engagement with inheritance cultural history the kind the versions of english history that people held held dear a lot of the focus here was on you know the ancient oldie england of of dark ales and old hidden nooks but People were also getting quite fed up with ye oldness. There was a sort of moment of trying to find a, a balance. So Evelyn Moore, for example, um, writes that whenever he sees a bit of Gothic lettering on the Ordnance Survey map, he goes the other way. And... In labels, his travel book labels, 1932, he does a really good tirade against ye olde arts and crafts and the kind dragon and the cheshire cheese and the oldie inn. And you can sort of tell how insistent was this whole rhetoric of authentic oldness, peddled particularly by H. V. Morton, actually, who was always wanting the deepest ingornock and the very darkest kind of real ale. And and that was not sitting happily with these modernist thinkers who wanted to keep hold of the past, but also to sort of question this idea of the crooked medieval being somehow more authentic than any other kind of, of past. And this is where you get the emergence of particular shell aesthetic of the bright and modern but also you know prehistoric and also the family friendly you know carefully censored cern giant for a good day out, yeah, the shell posters slightly less tantalising one. But it's a good one for archives because it's got antiquaries on it. Antiquaries prefer shell. And you know that there's no picture of a museum. It's out and about. The sun is shining. There's a sort of big smiley, another family-friendly, inflatable gargoyle. This is about kind of reinventing... The, the image of, of history I suppose they employed the best people to do the the punchline, Stonehenge wilts but Shell is still on the road droopy druids, you know, but here we go Betjeman particularly was involved with this, he had a crafty way of making industrial towns sound like charming out of the way villages so Chalton come hardy, Wintershell come Monday was joined by Newcastle on Tyne but Shell on the road You know, Newcastle on Tyne being made to sound like a little quaint place but also it works in the opposite direction, that Chaltern-Carmhardy becomes as urban as, as Newcastle on time. The Shell guides were themselves a sort of deeper exploration of what might be possible if you change your focus in looking at the, the past. So the instructions that went out from John Betjeman and John Piper, who were editing this this series was that too many existing guides thought that history started with the medieval period and went backwards, that really the things worth talking about were 15th century and and before. And Piper and Betjeman were absolutely adamant that... To do a good guidebook, you had to get a sense of the whole continuous evolution of life in a in a place. And that the eighteenth century and the nineteenth century and and what happened down the road last year were just as important and that one had to get a dialogue between those those things. And Piper was particularly interested in what he called ordinariness. When he did his guide to Oxfordshire, he talked about it as a sane, unselfconscious county where the fields are flat and have the usual number of cows. It's a wonderful assertion, I think, that you don't always need to look for sublimity or sensation, that ordinary things are worth looking at too. And, and that, this really was important as a moment of looking looking at 18th century plain churches box pews uh, vernacular architecture saving shop fronts the uh, piper and bettrium were were both really interested in commercial typography shop signs working places working farms dissenting chapels that was a that was a big thing railway stations so they were campaigning, too, against the demolition of a lot of these, a lot of these places and, and rewriting a criteria, really, for the sorts of things that we want to, to preserve and identify ourselves with. Now, I'm moving towards my segue here because part of the ordinariness that fascinated me in the 1930s was ordinary English weather. I was really struck by how many of these modernist artists wanted to bring weather into their, into their work. And not really big romantic weather either. Stevie Smith, one of my favourite writers... Let's have a look at her. There she is. Stevie Smith out in the rain. That was her favourite kind of outfit, a really good overcoat. No silk flapper skirts for her. She wrote about the, com- the complicated feelings of those who walk alone in the damp. And the best kind of weather she says, is murk and mess and high wind, if you can have that too. She writes in novel on yellow paper, a whole ode to damp, to the tap dripping and the spout dripping and dim gas flickering greenly in the damp conservatory. That sort of weather, that steady drip, was part of what John Piper insisted made British art distinctive. We've always been conscious of the soft atmosphere and changeable climate of our sea-washed country he says, where the air is never quite free from mist. He liked his paintings to be a bit Battered and windswept. And he very much liked a good thundery sky. This is uh, Windsor Castle. And when George VI looked at this series of Royal Commission paintings, uh, the thing that really struck him was that it was always a black sky. And you seem to have very bad luck with your weather, Mr. Piper. But perhaps it was good luck after all, because a good bit of British weather is a great spur to the imagination. And that's what I've tried to do uh, in. This new book, which comes out in September, and which has taken me five years of trying to sort out the history of English weather. So rain, it raineth every day. We we know that, but my contention is that it has rained differently. That I can spot a bit of 18th-century rain and distinguish it from a bit of medieval rain. What fascinates me is that writers and artists in different ages seem to have had very different relationships with the weather. There are times when the weather is all allegory and others when the plain numbers on a rain gauge count for more than a whole pantheon of aerial gods. Time for meteoric marvels, times for a gentle breeze. There are times when the weather, in fact, is scarcely mentioned. One of the things I wanted to find out is, have the British always been obsessed by the weather? And the answer turns out to be quite complicated because well, I'll do that in question time. We can go in and out of various phases in our obsession with with the weather. So you can can follow through these moments of intense interest in the weather, even within the lifespan of particular people. So the great diarist John Evelyn says very little about daily atmospheric conditions or indeed, you know, the weather in his garden. All through the 1660s and 1670s and then in the 1680s, for reasons which I think I pinpoint more regular mentions start to appear it becomes part of the daily backdrop to his life I mean my mother would every day write her diary and the first thing she put was sunny or boring cloud all day rain when we went out there's this sense in which we expect that our day is kind of formed by the weather and that's not always been the case and it just sort of emerges in the in the 17th and 18th centuries it's hard to find a description of a rainy night in the early 1700s. But just think, by the end of that century, when the romantics are in full full blow, they'll take a, a storm, even a little squall, as the most potent possible imagery for their most probing thoughts. So I wanted to know how a shift like that Takes place. I've put just a few um, images together to give you a sort of sense of this huge range of ways of thinking about weather. This is, this is from a, um, a pamphlet about the 1603 storm and suggests to us a world of punitive weather, you know, where the heavens uh, have got it in for us and weather with agency, whether that means to spit at us. and. Going a little bit later into the 18th, the 18th century, you start to get that sense of the rational measuring of of weather. If you can count it, you can control it. But also in the 18th century, new interest in the aesthetic effects of, of weather. This is um, William Kent illustrating James Thompson's uh, uh, 1730 poem, The Seasons, which I think is the first... The first British poem to put weather in the foreground as its main subject. Amazingly, that doesn't happen before 1730. And you can feel it even in this illustration, that sense of the mobility and breeze. The word breeze comes into its own in the 18th century as it hadn't done before. And of course, along the way, I was tremendously helped by diaries and records kept by primarily parsons and rectors up and down the country. A few curates in the Gilbert White tradition, or indeed before Gilbert White, from the, from the 1680s onward particularly, following upon the Royal Society's uh, instructions that that if people could please observe the weather, uh, that would be very helpful, and please could you send in your observations for the philosophical transactions. And up and down the pe- country, people were doing it. And this was you know, taken almost at, at random, a little e- example of of a a rector in Surrey called William Eames, who is writing down the weather in his his tiny little book. He doesn't get many words on a page, does he? But he's testing out... What have we got here? we Have got the... Yeah, this is hailstones as big as walnuts. Walnuts are very irregular figures, some as sharp points like needles, others with four feet like a stool. I don't know, I've never seen a a hailstone with four feet like a stool, actually, but if you do... (laughs) It's already been spotted. And then he goes, he goes on to do his own sort of tests of the St. Swithun's Day uh, folklore and, you know, measures his 40 days of, of rain or shine each year. And I love the sense of this man, without a wide circle of, of correspondence, just sitting in his rectory, watching and thinking and writing down and thinking, you know, do the old pieces of weather law make sense now? Um... And here is a piece. Here is a raindrop, or here is a here is a hailstone. How precise can I be about it? Let me look and look and look. And you get that in so many of the weather journals through the through the sixteen nineties. I mean, there is uh, the legendary Thomas Barker in in Rutland, who's um, uh, Gilbert White's brother-in-law, uh, who's who's checking the weather five times a day for his diaries, but also clearly checking it in between as well and measuring all possible measures five times a day, not missing any days. I mean, he cannot move from his his home in Rutland. He can't even go and see Gilbert White because Gilbert White's got to stay in Selborne to see how the tortoise is doing. And brother-in-law has got to stay in Rutland in case he misses, you know, a change of one degree in the temperature. Um, These are committed, obsessive people. Possibly William Eames wasn't quite so obsessed as this, but this Culture that says observation is joyous and important and can contribute to some sort of wider project anyhow, so I was trying to, I was trying to explain this hypothesis I suppose I had that our attitudes to weather have changed, and that we, get, we have tastes in weather in the way that we have tastes in clothes and tastes in pictures we have tastes i think in in weather there were fashions it was really virginia wolf i'm afraid uh who made me think about how periods of history generate atmospheres of of their own her 1928 novel orlando being a virtuoso pageant of five centuries establishes the tone of life in each era by describing changes in the air the 18th century is all clear let's have an 18th century picture yeah uh, nice breeze, nice pastel colours, a bit of Gainsborough, uh, gentle weather, yeah. The 18th century is all clear skies, long vistas suitable for enlightened thinking and overarching town planning, excellent enlightenment weather. But then comes a dramatic meteorological change. This is a little quotation from Orlando. The first stroke of midnight sounded... Orlando then, for the first time, noticed a small cloud gathered behind the Dome of St Paul's. As the strokes sounded, the cloud increased, and she saw it darken and spread with extraordinary speed. As the ninth, tenth, eleventh strokes struck, a huge blackness sprawled over the whole of London. With the twelfth stroke of midnight, the darkness was complete. A turbulent welter of cloud covered the city. All was darkness, all was doubt, all was confusion— the 18th century was over. The 19th century had begun. It's all a tremendous joke, of course, but the joke as jokes always do in, in Virginia Woolf, works clearly with matters of, of fact. So that immediately, as we as we imagine this tr- flopping over into the 19th century and the cloud closes in and the rain comes down, don't we just think of the dark-panelled walls and the yards of black taffeta and the rain as it comes down and the paintings of Atkinson Grimshaw and the zinc green of long, damp lead and the sheen of cobbles in gaslight? And don't we think of the fog in Chancery and the floods rising around bleak house and yes the waters are out in lincolnshire why does the 19th century feel so very damp this was my key research question actually because i thought if i could crack the 19th century (laughs) well the anglo-saxons were easy after that well you know clearly if everyone's writing about rain in the 19th century perhaps it was very damp That's easy enough to check. Anyone at the National Archives will know how to check the rainfall in the 19th century. There were some very wet years. Behold, there were also some very dry years. So I couldn't, to be honest, make much of a correlation between writing in literature, uh, I mean, rain in literature and rain coming down outside. Clearly, industrial smoke is Part of that big black cloud that Wolf talks about, and I've got—I've—I've you know, I've, I've thought quite a lot, obviously, about Ruskin's storm cloud of the 19th century and quite how far it's—it's it's literal. But even for Ruskin, his sense that the weather has changed in the 19th century is not allied that closely with measurable fact. He thinks that what he's seeing in the dark skies is more than industrial pollution, is something spiritual and something primarily subjective. And Wolf's sensitivity to atmospheric variations is to do with subjective perception too. She had this astonishingly wide and deep reading across the centuries, and from that reading she detected changing sensitivity to different kinds of weather. And so I had this idea that perhaps I could trace these shifts for myself. And I thought, if one actually read straight forward through English literature, if, you, if that's ever possible, or at least tried to keep in some kind of chronological direction, would it be possible to feel the weather change? And now, obviously, this is a stupid idea. Um, so I wasn't really going to do this until I spent a summer reading Anglo-Saxon poetry and, and chronicles and I thought, oh, my goodness, where is the sun? The Wanderer, The Seafarer, riddles about icebergs, riddles about weathercocks hidden by snow, battered by the elements, rune poems about the frost which is as fair as jewels. I was just amazed, actually, by the subtlety of the responsiveness before the conquest to forms of ice. How how much ice meant in that, that culture and how apparently uninterested the Anglo-Saxons were in writing about balmy summer days so once I had been sort of curious about that I thought well I've got to I've got to keep reading now and see when things warm up a bit when when does spring come in imaginative writing and of course predictably but still I think amazingly it comes after the conquest in the lyrics of the 12th and 13th century, the most famous famous one there. Um, the summaries are coming in, which we still read from the, the first, the initial, sorry, the original hymn sheet, in a, in a sense we can still uh, sing it from the original 13th century document in the Harley collection. This is where the cuckoo sings, the long hold of ice is over, and the songs from here on in are going to be about... April and May, one that April with his surer's Sutta And the Shura Sutta in Chaucer bring down a whole load of April imaginative poems. It's not always, it wasn't always spring, of course, in the, the Middle Ages. And sometimes even April was icy or flooded. The weather didn't always conform to the conventions of, of courtly romance. But I wanted to try and understand a little bit about the medieval modes of representing weather and forecasting forecasting it. So I thought, and I shall. Sure End in a bit, but I've just got to show you my favourite my favourite source from from my work on this book really, which is from the Rawlinson collection in the the Bodleian. These are some pages, pages from a little folding almanac which seems to have been owned by Harry the Hayward and was made, we think, in 13... We think, I don't know, bibliographers think, made 1383 and used in Worcestershire by a Harry, and clearly his dog, Talbot, as well, because there's a portrait of his dog on the first page. And this, this document and this kind of document were, for me, wonderful because it's so rare To find visualizations of of weather. I mean, this is like the BBC weather map of the of the 14th century, and to be able to see things like oh, so these are these are the winters here. It's dark winter, and this is the way of uh, thinking about uh, the way that wind is blown. Very forcibly from people's from people's mouths. That's, that sense of the little iconography with which weather is is imagined was, to me, gripping because it's not something that you're going to find in in the fine art of the period. Like there's no snow painting before 1400, and then it's in in Europe. There are no paintings of. The, like naturalistic paintings of the sky at, at this point, so actually the sources are quite few and, and far between for a sense of visual imagination but here we've, so this is a thunder pronostication chart, and you can see it working through the the months of the year if you hear if you hear let 's do the last one because it 's so nice if you hear thunder in december there 'll be plenty of fruit on the trees, a small amount of produce uh, on your platter uh, but there will be peace and concord among the nations, here are some people in Greece. So that's all right, if you want to hear listen out for thunder in December. Because if you hear it in December, it overrides thunder in all the other months, so that's the good thing. So for example, this, this thunder here is awful, what's that, April? Um, these are all people dying, everyone is going to die in the in April. Um, if you hear thunder, that's that'd be terrible, so best to hear it in, in December and this here is a harvest prophecy table based on the date of the, the day of the week on which the 1st of January falls we won't go through that you can enjoy it but this the the, the conjunction of this kind of a everyday document with the with, with easel painting, with the fine arts and with imaginative literature has been the sort of jigsaw that I've been trying to put together and you can tell why at this rate it took me two years to read Shakespeare uh, and then another three years to get anywhere near my own period, modernism about which I have a great deal to say but I will at this point shut up and thank you very much for listening. Thank you. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the open government.